Welcome to Swift Unscripted, a podcast that gives you the opportunity to hear inside stories and be a part of the conversation with education leaders who are transforming schools to benefit each and every student, their families, and ultimately the communities in which they live. Hello, everyone. I'm Amy McCart. I'm the co-director of the Swift Education Center, and today I am joined by Dr. Kokethia Hill, uh, Director of Research Development and Leadership here at Swift, and we are really excited to have her here. Dr. Hill is a leader and icon in the field. She is an educator and community advocate, and most importantly, a mother of a young son in these times. And we welcome her to Swift Unscripted. Thank you. Well, we're going to dig right in today on some really important topics. And the, the header for our podcast or title for our podcast today is From Statement to Action. And we wanted to be sure that in this time of importance of racial transformation and civil rights and equity that we are really not just putting out a statement and leaving it there, but rather moving into action. So I wanted to start by just asking you about your thoughts on moving from statement to action and any advice you might have. Well, again, thank you for having the opportunity for me to speak briefly on uh, Swift Unscripted. And I think, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, I think that it was very powerful for organizations and nonprofits and for-profit entities to publicly, you know, affirm, acknowledge, and make a declaration about racism and its unjust level of persecution against people of color. I think that was important. I think as individuals are committing their careers and their resources and their volunteerism with companies, it's important to see a reflection that your your life is valued and that people uh, recognize that we're in unprecedented moments such that a human being can die and have someone kneeling on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds in America in 20. So I think that's powerful, but we realize that statements alone will not rid our systems of racism. It's actually going to require us to work collaboratively to acknowledge where racism exists, to deconstruct the policies and practices and protocols that support and uphold it, and to redesign a more equitable future that we all want to see. And so I think it's a, a great first step, but really the statements have power when you can now say a year from now, we've done this, we've eliminated this, we've made gains here. And I think that's how you can show that Black lives do indeed matter. So, so important. Oh, thank you for that, Kokethia. So powerful. I'm thinking back to Dr. Dennis Carpenter's podcast that he did on Swift, and he spoke of moving even beyond allyship into co-conspiratorship in this work. Talk a little bit about allyship or co-conspiratorship. Yeah, I think Dr. Carpenter is correct, right? The world needs a lot more co-conspirators when we're talking about deconstructing racism. But I think it's important that we meet people where they are so that we can scale them up into being effective. And again, moving beyond a statement. So when you think about an ally, I think about when we talk about the distinction between empathy and sympathy, right? 
sympathy is having pity. Like, oh, this is so sad that Black people are dying, or it's so sad that kids are not getting a fair education in this country. Oh, I wish things were not this way. But, you know, it's just, I feel pity. I feel sorrow. And empathy is connecting with an experience within your life that caused you to feel that same type of emotion. So empathy is a prerequisite for compassion, right? Compassion means I feel compelled to act. So an ally is saying, yes, I know what it feels like, maybe not to take on the complete struggle of racism, But I know what it feels like to be denied something that I feel like I have the right to. I know what it's like to show up in this space and have the credentials, but still not feel like I'm a valued member of a team. I know what it must feel like to go somewhere and try to get something that you really want, but you're denied and you're not sure why. And so when you can connect on an emotional level and then you connect that to this is not right, we cannot live in a system in which this exists, then you feel compelled to act. And so an ally says, you know, I want to join you in this work to this end. I want to join you in creating, you know, systemic and lasting change to better outcomes for X. So an ally joins in not to lead, to overtake, to reposition, to create an alternate narrative. An ally is like, I am your partner. I am here. And I think about old Westerns that I used to watch with my dad and even shows like Miami Vice or MASH when they would be facing enemy forces and someone needs to get to the other side. I think it's called like sustaining fire where someone say, cover me. And that person is shooting, right? Or, you know, getting back at the enemy to provide cover for you to get to the next space that you need to be. And so when we think about ally, it is that providing cover, exchanging privilege, amplifying voices, using their sphere of influence to change a system to provide cover so those that are doing the work are not always met with these barriers and challenges and setbacks. And then we can get to a space where when it's co-conspirating, it's like, I don't just need you in the moment. Now let's think about the grand scheme of how we're going to work to win this battle, right? Or to win this war. You need both. But before you can have the strategic expertise to become a co-conspirator, you've got to have been battle tested, right? I need to know that you understand how to block, how to tackle, when to insert, how to exchange. And so I think it's just a journey of helping to build people's capacity to do the work that they want to do, right? People that become allies is because they really want to see a change. And so they can't change systems without being informed about how we can do that together and what will be best for people. So, you know, it's a journey. It's a journey for all of us. Oh, great visual. It's like how to really be there for someone in the manner in which you authentically need that person to be. I think for people to show up, it requires them to kind of understand their own identity. I know you've spoken a lot about intersectionality and people understanding their identities during this time. Does that relate to this allyship and co-conspirator? Absolutely. I think we need to do some really deep introspective work uh, around our identities and the intersectionality of those with our lived experiences. 
because it's how we show up in the work. And you might think that you've put on enough makeup, you've got enough degrees, you have, you know, the right, you're steeped in the right language, but how you show up in the work is unconscious. And so in order to really think through, you know, when I feel tension, what is this tension about? When I'm afraid or I'm fearful, what is that about? So to get back to the analogy of having an ally with you in battle is if I ask you to cover for me and I start running, but you don't really understand how to provide cover or how to, you know, protect, then I'm out there thinking that, hey, I got this cover and I'm dancing because now there's no one there to support me. And it might not be because you didn't have the will, it's because you paused, something came up for you that handicapped you in that space. And so when we start thinking about our identity. I show up as a, a Black woman who is a mother of a young Black son who has six brothers who have had that conversation and watched that conversation for my father to my brothers have with their sons about the police and have watched my brothers have it with my nephews. And I'm asking myself, am I going to have to have this conversation with my son? You know, and we see three generations of that conversation in my family still happening, right? And so when someone doesn't have a sense of urgency and that becomes a tension point for me, I can go back and say, oh, I know how I'm showing up in this work. This is proximate to me. This is important to me. This is urgent to me because I am grappling with it in my everyday lived experience and others may not. So when we can show up with our full authentic self and we can talk about, hey, I'm having a challenge or can you unpack this for me? Or how can I navigate in a space that disarms this work for you, but builds your capacity to be a leader and to leverage your privilege so that we can get to the same aim? I think that that's what helps us in this work and it helps us to understand what type of professional development or capacity support do we need as a team to fully function as a cadre or as an army. If we go back to the battle analogy, some of us need training on what that looks like and how we can better be in a position. We all want to feel competent. Nobody that's a professional wants to operate in a space where they're not authentic or competent and supported in value. Everybody wants that. And so we need to find ways to facilitate that. And if we want to bring our full selves to the work, then we got to do the authentic deep dive to find out how our identities intersect with this new bucket of work or continuing bucket of work that we're doing in this new space. What do you recommend as first steps for educators who want to know more about exploring their identity to serve as an ally or co-conspirator? I think the SWIFT website will definitely have some tools. We've done a lot of work around intersectionality, unpacking implicit bias, how to be authentic in the workspace. And we have a lot of tools on how do we self-evaluate? Where are those spaces that I can look through and say, okay, I'm here. You know, I'm a person that wants to be an ally, but I'm really not sure on what that means for the work that I need to do in the spaces that I have agency and power or authority, or I have a diverse team. How can I ask specific questions and build my coaching with the members of my team to build trust so that we can talk about where we are and what we need so that we can be competent in this new space of work? 
And then also thinking about our own strengths and weaknesses. What are the things that Kokithia is really solid at that is not going to be a steep hill for her? Maybe we start prioritizing our work around our natural interests. And then that gives people time to get to a place where they need to be. But it's all in the spirit of recognizing that the best kind of first step is just having a willing heart. You got to have someone that comes to the table with a willing heart that wants to be vulnerable and say, hey, I'm here to help. I don't know where to start. Coach me. I'll be honest with you about what I'm willing to negotiate and do and what privileges I bring to the table to help advance this work. And I think that's the first step in this process. Do you feel like Black educators have more pressures on their shoulders to try to help their white colleagues understand how to be an effective ally? Yeah, I I do. I think that quite naturally, when there's an experience that someone is more familiar with and you're not, your kind of first reaction is like, let me go to people who know, who can tell me how to do this. And I also believe that that comes with a heavy burden, right? I've got to figure out where you are, what your tolerance level is for this space, and give you an appropriate response that doesn't diminish the work or make it seem like it's that easy. Secondly, I just think that oftentimes when Black educators are looking in their institutions, they are not seeing themselves reflected in leadership, right? And they are not empowered to create really systemic change. They are team players. They can add to an agenda or maybe be a part of a brainstorming strategy session. But you and I know that policies, practices, and protocols and using data is what will shift systems. And so if your voice, if your leadership, if your power, if your agency is not centered in those spaces, then what you have is just rhetoric at meetings, right? And so I think that that's the level of burden and frustration when you are educating a kid that looks like you, that you know is not getting the type of education and you understand what those life outcomes will be for that kid. And here you are in a unique position to offer up some advice, strategy, research to change that, but you're not welcome, invited, or included at the table to help legislate change. And so that can be very daunting, very frustrated. And I think that's why we see Black educators, you know, leave this space, you know, at alarming rates. I agree. I'm hearing you reflect on several points that there is a tremendous urgency here. Yes. That we need to be allies and co-conspirators in this work for Black lives and other people of color. That we need to understand our own identity and grow in our learning and knowledge of other identities to be a successful ally to provide that cover that you're talking about. And that we have to be willing to move beyond just rhetoric, be it in meetings or on websites or in company protocols into actions. And that is a collective effort. Absolutely. I think that folks are often thinking about the big change, right? The overhauling the massive systems. And they can look inside and, and collect data on their outputs and their impact within their own system. And they can look for those small spaces where their influence meets an opportunity for change. 
So, Coquitia, in this time of COVID and racial transformation, educators are feeling just dramatically overwhelmed, and they want to show up for their colleagues in a way that matters. They want to show up for their students in a way that matters. What's your advice or suggestion for people so that they don't feel overburdened by the system right now and how to do this work without drowning in all that is out there? Well, we find ourselves in a really tough time. Daily, it seems we are so overwhelmed with news about the pandemic, health disparities, race, police brutality, and oppression. And for some people that are committed to doing the work, they may feel as if their work is even really making a difference. And I understand how people can feel like that. But I'm often reminded of the story of the starfish. And in that story, there's a man who is walking along the ocean and he's picking up starfish that have washed ashore and he's throwing them back in um, the sea. And a woman comes up and she says, wow, there are so many starfish that have washed up and you're throwing one in at a time. Is that ever gonna make a difference? And the man looks at her and picks up a starfish. He says, for that one starfish, it makes all the difference. And so I like to think about our work like that. Yes, tackling systemic racism, structural systems of oppression seems like a mighty task and it can feel very overwhelming and almost so looming that you think any little chip that your work is making in deconstructing that system seems that it is to no avail. But for every kid, for every family, for every life that is saved, it makes all the difference for that person. So when we create schools that have equitable systems and we have kids that are graduating instead of dropping out, when we provide supports to kids that are not labeled but empowered. When we give teachers the tools so that they can address the disparities and speak life to those kids for every teacher, for every school, for every district, for every outcome that we change from negative to positive, it makes all the difference. And when everyone is doing this work and chipping away at their peace, then we will look back and see that we did in fact change systems with our own little work in our own way. Many people might not know, but in my young lifetime, I've had a lot of people that have been close to me succumb to cancer. And I always have said, what if the cure to cancer is trapped in the mind of some kid that we've decided doesn't deserve a fair education? We don't care who is the person to break that code and to give us that cure. And so we can no longer afford, just like we're seeing in this pandemic and the rush to get a vaccine, we can no longer afford in America to decide that there's a certain population of kids that do not deserve a rigorous, appropriate public education system that will help them reach their fullest potential. Because that kid reaching this fullest potential might have the life-saving tool that I need for my child or my grandchild. And so when we start to see ourselves connected in this way, then we show up and say, yeah, if it's that one kid all year, if it's this one school, or if it's this one school district, then yeah, it does matter. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time today to share with us your thoughts and spend time with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Swift Unscripted, a podcast produced by Swift Education Center. We invite you to comment on what you heard and to visit our website, swiftschools.org, where you can find more stories of school-wide transformation and resources to start your own school transformation. Swift Education Center is a research and technical assistance center located at the University of Kansas.